Book two, chapter eight of the Mask by Florence Irwin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. One summer morning, Alison sat bathing her baby. It was a daily function that was attended by the entire household of St. Mary's Rectory, save and except Mr. Terry, and even he often looked in. Mrs. Terry was always present, and Ella and Delia wouldn't have missed it for anything in the world. They were even jealous of the young nursemaid who had been engaged for the summer, but who really didn't belong, according to their ideas. They merely tolerated her. Mother, baby is crazy to come to you, laughed Alison. Just look at him. I shall be jealous soon. Granny's own precious boy, cooed Mrs. Terry. Did you ever see anything like the way he has grown, Alison? Look at his little legs. Ain't they strong? chimed in Ellen. Here's the towel, Miss Allison. It's a shame to take him out. He loves it so. Mrs. Terry followed her daughter into the shaded bedroom where the young lord of the household had his morning meal and his nap. The baby, his mother, and his grandmother all loved this quiet hour. Allison sat looking down at the child at her breast, her face the picture of content, and Mrs. Terry sat looking at her child and her child's child, and feeling that all was well, indeed. "'You are happy, aren't you, dear?' she presently asked. "'Oh, so happy, mother. It's a wonderful sort of happiness, isn't it? So special and different. But I'm afraid I've never really appreciated you before. You never understand about a mother's feelings and hopes and fears until you have a child of your own, do you?' "'Dearest,' breathed Mrs. Terry. To me the great proof of your happiness is the way that you have softened. I'll tell you now, my child, that sometimes I feared for you. Not that I doubted Phil's love for you or yours for him, but we knew so little of him, and he had led such a strange life, away from all home ties and in those bohemian surroundings. And you, yourself, were rather intolerant of those things which called forth your disapproval. I feared there might be trouble, but I can see now how wrong I was to worry. Marriage has done much for you. You are gentler, less positive in your judgments. Your married life has evidently been a great softener. And I am sure you are much happier than in the old days, even, aren't you, dear? For a fraction of a second, Alison did not reply. Then, touching with a light finger the rose-leaf cheek of her son, Yes, mother, she said gravely. And at the words, with an absolute physical sensation, she felt the clamp of a mask on her face. It was so acute that she almost put up her hand to touch it. So it had come to this. She, Alison Terry, had assumed as thick and impenetrable a mask as she could muster, and was wearing it in the presence of her own mother. All her life, she supposed, she would continue to wear it. Her mind raced back over the knowledge and experience that she had collected in the past eighteen months. What would her mother say if she could peep into her own daughter's heart? What would she think? Alison knew that she possessed more worldly knowledge than her mother would ever possess, that she had already passed through more startling and sordid experiences than Mrs. Terry could even imagine, and that the recounting of them would always be an impossibility. 
both listener and speaker would feel ashamed and polluted. There was no help for it. She had not courted the experiences. Gladly would she have shunned them, had she been free to choose. They were forced on her. She had to learn, she had to see, she had to know. Past experiences could not be wiped out by present confession, and present confession would be impotent to mitigate suffering. Rather it would inflict. It was barred as an impossibility. And the alternative was a mask. With a long, sighing breath, she accepted her new possession together with its responsibilities. Softened. Tolerant. She softened and grown tolerant? Ferris wouldn't think so. Nor Kepner, nor even Phil himself, she feared. Sitting there in the quiet, in the clean, sweet air of her girlhood home, away from the rushing roar of New York's seething maelstrom, she was able to think clearly, to measure, and to weigh. Mrs. Terry rose, in answer to a light tap at the door, and with a nod of farewell, tiptoed from the room, and Alison was left to her reflections. Have you ever, dear reader of mine, have you ever lain convalescing from an illness, weak and spent, but with the knowledge that recovery was on the way? Have you gazed around your darkened chamber, where no bright light penetrated, and every footfall was muffled? Have you listened to the far-away roar and din of the street, and to the sounds of natural life in the distant parts of the house, and realized that, some day, you must be back in the thick of it, some day? Your temporary seclusion ended, its measures and values forgotten. You will be out again in the noise and the glare, struggling and pushing with the rest. Where, then, will be the sick-room standards and proportions? Where will be the resolutions against rush and contamination and strain? They may be right, they may be clear-visioned and cleaner-purposed than the standards of the whirligig, but they'll have to go, or at least be modified. They won't measure up against the demands of the ordinary work-a-day world. And that's the rub. So Alison, sitting in the hushed room, in the peaceful house, in the quiet village, looked back upon New York. Some day she would return, and when she did, she must inevitably make her methods conform to the exigencies of the life that she found. It was all right to make unbreakable rules in Coningsboro, provided you were going to stay in Coningsboro, but other places, other manners. And since you could not demand that some four million souls should immediately regulate their lives to your standards, it followed that you, the newcomer in their midst, must inevitably be the one to accommodate yourself to necessity. For the first time, Alison looked at her husband's past through her husband's eyes, and this is what she saw. A child born with certain brilliant gifts inherited from his father, and certain weak characteristics inherited from his mother. A stern and autocratic father developing into a fierce tyrant. A little coward who could no more help lying when frightened than he could help falling when tripped. 
as a half-blind child should be led gently by the hand until time heals his infirmity and fullness of vision renders him capable of taking care of himself so should this moral weakling have been trained by love instead of fear alison looking back could imagine it all the weak boy seeking shelter behind his mother that mother striving to shield him and the tyrant they feared denouncing them both inevitable was the break and the subsequent separation she could see too that phil and his father both thought they spoke truly when each accused the other of breaking mrs howland's heart phil actually believed that his father had done it judge howland was equally convinced that his son had done it the chances were that it was a joint affair and that neither father nor son could point an accusing finger at the other phil adrift forced to support himself ill-equipped by character and training for the task had reached a mediocre level he had done as those around him had done their standards came to be his standards they seemed all right to him and any one who was shocked by them was a prig then as a climax he had married one of these prigs and had taken her to the only surroundings to which he could possibly have taken her they were all that he had and she once arrived had disliked his friends disliked his habits disliked his thoughts disliked his life she had expected him to tread the path that she with her coningsboro ideas had chosen as ideal she had had too little sympathy for his shortcomings she had married a barnyard fowl and had demanded that he soar with her into the faraway ether of spiritual fancy and he together with the rest of the barnyard fowls had looked upon her with uncomprehending eyes to them she was attractive but exotic distinctly not their kind poor phil for the first time since her marriage she said the words poor phil but why had he chosen her for his wife that was the one weak link in the chain she had chosen with eyes that were blindfolded also she had gone because she thought that she was needed but her husband's choice remained a mystery well he had chosen and so had she and that being the case it behooved them both to make the best of it phil certainly had his gifts if you buy a cherry tree you don't expect it to bear cherries and peaches and apples and plums you cannot have every variety of luscious fruit on the same tree be content if your cherry tree bears you a goodly crop of its own particular fruit and don't sigh for all the other harvests that you never had any right to demand life after all was a wonderful a miraculous gift no one except its owner could really spoil it the acts of others important as they might sometimes seem could never be vital as one's own acts were vital they would always be extraneous matters the world was full of interest and opportunity and of love to seek and to give hearts might be sad and lonely but as long as life lasted there was always hope ahead and above there was faith there was god 
Alison rose and carried the now sleeping child to his crib. As she bent over the little form, she resolved that her son should be so trained that he should be her crown of joy, and she whispered a prayer for guidance. Downstairs, Gertrude was waiting to carry her off. The motor would return later for little Phillips and his nurse, and they could all come home together in the late afternoon. Ken had gone to the city for the day, and Gertrude was so lonely without him that she must have company. Besides which, she would rather be with her sister Alison than with anyone in the world save her husband and her son. In the old days, Alison used to think, together with most persons, that nothing could be more beautiful than Gertrude Terry. Gertrude Rawle proved the fallacy of this belief. Her dazzling loveliness threw her maiden beauty quite into the shade. Even a plain woman may be transformed by happiness, and Gertrude's happiness was absolute. As she and Alison drove through the wide, shady streets of Coningsboro, every foot of ground recalled some old memory. Since Alison's return, not a day had passed without a meeting of these two sisters, and yet they were never talked out. There's the corner where I first met Ken face to face and talked to him, said Gertrude. He was in riding clothes. Did I tell you that I am to have riding lessons? He is devoted to horses, so we are to ride together. Do you know, Gertsey, everything looks so different to me that it doesn't seem possible that I have been away less than two years. I don't notice it so much at home. The rectory and church are just the same as ever. But even there I keep measuring up their ideas of life, which were my own former ones, against things as they really are out in the world. I know, responded Gertrude, nodding her head. It is not the same thing at all. Was our innocent preparation for life good or bad, do you think? Of course it was not adequate. But in the case of your own children, would you let them think everything was ideal until their eyes were opened by force? Or would you pull their eyes open yourself in order to save them a later shock? asked Alison. I should do precisely as mother and father did, keep them entirely innocent of evil just as long as possible. I knew you would say that, cried Alison joyfully. So should I. In the first place, they have those happy years, and in the second place, I'm sure that the effect of them is never lost. In some mysterious way, it is a permanent safeguard. Don't you think so? I know it. The longer your acquaintance with evil, the less evil it seems. Exactly. There was a time when I thought that I had been unfairly treated by being willfully blinded. Now I know that it was best. And what is more, Gertsey, mother and father don't know half as much about the world as we do ourselves. That's the exact point. I find myself constantly on guard before them, for fear I may thoughtlessly wound them or shock them. Gertrude's mask, then, was discarded in her own home, but assumed in the home of her parents. Then they fell to talking of lighter things. The streets, said Alison, look the same, and yet not the same. They are just as wide and just as shady, but there is a different air about them. I don't suppose you notice it, 
because you weren't away from them so long. Indeed, I did notice it. Even after a three months' absence, I felt it. Do you see how many motors there are now? I know. It's perfectly remarkable. They are flying all over the place. The Russells started that. Unless, indeed, we did. But Lila and her mother couldn't rest until they had one. And then it seemed no time at all until the whole place had followed suit. Poor Elsa. It's awfully hard on her. Roscoe can't afford one, and she feels it so. At the mention of Elsa's name, a shade passed over Alison's face, but she said nothing. Here is the new country club, continued Gertrude. That is the greatest innovation of all. Nearly every party is given there now. Roscoe is crazy over golf. I wish Elsa would take it up. I wish she would. It would give them that interest in common. Lila Russell says that Roz spends most of his evenings at that other new club, the men's club. Gertrude turned and her eyes met Alison's. Then she nodded and there was a little silence. Here we are, cried the younger sister presently. And there's my darling. Bring him here, Nanny, and let him speak to his Aunt Alison. Gertrude's son was now nearly seven months old, and no little prince of royal blood was ever more fated and petted. His parents, his little stepbrother and stepsister, and every servant in the establishment all worshipped at his shrine. A staid Englishwoman in nurse's livery brought him over to receive his aunt's homage, and he cooed and smiled and gurgled just as if he knew all about his own importance and rejoiced in it. How beautiful your home is, Gertrude, dear, said Alison. Have you a single care in the whole world? Not one, unless you'd call little Kenny's temper a care. I'm making it my special care now, and I'm sure he'll come out all right in a year or two. He's been horribly spoiled, you know left to nurses and given everything that money could buy you should just have seen him when anything displeased him he would clench his little fists and his whole face would be convulsed with passion i'm teaching him to control his impatience and in time i'm sure his temper fits will be gone so little ken aged six and a half was already being fitted to a mask a necessary one to be sure but what a baby he seemed to have one of any kind. How about Dodo? asked Alison. She's the sweetest child in the world. I don't believe she has a fault, but her extreme sensitiveness will make her miserable unless she learns to control it. And she is learning. She's trying hard not to give way to every feeling. Another baby mask. After luncheon, the two sisters went out on to one of the beautiful furnished piazzas for their coffee. Alison, looking across the velvety sward and at the wonderful old trees, breathed a sigh of content. Her own son and Gertrude's son were being wheeled by their respective nurses into the shadows for an afternoon airing. Dodo and Kenny rode off on their ponies in charge of the groom blowing farewell kisses to their new mother and their aunt Alison. All was peace and happiness. How I should love to have a country home, sighed the New York prisoner. Why don't you? 
there are lovely homes outside of new york ken says morristown is charming but that he himself would rather live up the hudson why don't you move out there somewhere we can't afford it replied alison oh can't you what a shame i supposed phil had quite a big income he grew so famous with his inca and his mountebanks an author's income responded alison carefully is variable it is too uncertain to warrant anything but a very average expenditure it is not like a settled income or even like a salary and then new york is so horribly expensive you can't do nearly as much there on a given sum as you can in other places yes of course i suppose that if phil lived up to his highest earnings he'd get into trouble when times weren't so good so in good times he must always be saving towards those that are less prosperous precisely payments are so irregular i see it must be awfully interesting to have phil read his work to you before he sends it out and you are so clever you are surely a great help to him he doesn't need my help his style is wonderful said phil's wife oh gertsey she went on impulsively there is something that i wish you'd get ken to do for me gertrude looked up with a quick look of comprehension i know he must he will it's all wrong that our husband should not be on good terms i'll manage ken and you must manage phil phil will have to come halfway of course said alison you see we may be in new york quite a bit next winter and it would be too horrid not to have everything nice and smooth between them in new york you and ken alison tried to speak enthusiastically yes i'm not sure though we're not going to stay in the country anyhow mother and father don't know that yet and i hate to break it to them we shall still keep this place for the summers but the children are quite well and strong now and they should be at school with other children of their age and ken is wild to take me out in society he is so foolish dear old thing he says he wants to exhibit me so we are planning to open the townhouse and entertain a lot and we are going south but probably we shall be in new york off and on you lucky girl said alison i don't envy you your parties in town but i do most awfully envy you the chance to travel my dear you must do it the minute your baby is old enough it's the most wonderful thing in the world and with your mind you'd see things that i'd never see allie i wish elsa could travel just enough to get out of the rut she's fallen in she seems to think that it matters such a lot whether she sits on her hostess right or left at a coningsboro luncheon party and she isn't a bit happy she'll end by making a mess of her life they say that roz is away from home a lot and it's almost certainly elsa's fault if he is for you know how perfectly devoted he used to be to her i wish you'd talk to elsa she wouldn't take advice from me you remember we used to rub each other somewhat in the old rectory days and now that i have so much more worldly gear elsa simply can't stand me oh gertrude don't say such things it's true before we've talked ten minutes she's on edge 
and i'm perfectly certain it isn't my fault it never happens between me and anyone else in the world and it constantly happens between elsa and others i know that i could never make her believe that i regard my money as the least of my blessings you talk to her about things won't you yes i will promised alison i am lunching there tomorrow just alone with elsa and i'll try to make an opportunity there's another thing pursued gertrude rather slowly i do wish elsa were fonder of children Roz adores them so he nearly eats terry up every time he comes out here and elsa always seems to take it as a personal insult and then mother and father adore the babies so when you're gone and i'm gone i don't know what in the world they'll do and then a carload of visitors arrived and ended sisterly confidences end of book two chapter eight